what I think many times is missing is an examination of our own structures and the ways in which they contribute to structural racism. When I thought about the large cohort studies that I know about, many times those cohort studies are passed down over and over. And I could not think of very many instances in which they were passed down to people of color. And let's be honest, a lot of academic research operates based on relationships and who you know. And because the people who hold the research power, and in this case, the PIs of those studies, aren't opening it up to the network of faculty who are people of color, there are a lot of people of color who then don't have that institutional power to make decisions about what we know in public health and what questions get asked in public health. Welcome to the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing podcast, Aging Fast and Slow. This podcast is supported by the National Institute on Aging Pioneer Award. Thanks for listening. We are Dr. Sarah Zanton and Dr. Deidre Cruz, your hosts. For anyone new to our podcast, we speak with scientists, policy experts, and innovators to better understand aging across the life course with a special emphasis on the sustained impact of racism in health, the impact this has over the life course, and what can be done to tackle these inequalities. On today's episode, we're delighted to welcome our guest, Dr. Lorraine Dean. Dr. Dean is an associate professor at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, where she examines how privilege and disadvantage influence chronic disease. As a social epidemiologist, Dr. Dean researches how individual and neighborhood-level social and economic factors contribute to health disparities and health outcomes for those managing chronic diseases. Structural racism has attracted increasing interest as an explanation for racial disparities in health, but structural racism has often been measured using single indicator proxies such as housing discrimination. This approach leaves important aspects of structural racism unaccounted for. Much of Dr. Dean's research explores definitions and methods to measure structural racism. Welcome, Dr. Dean. We are so excited to be talking with you today. Thanks so much for having me. (laughs) The term structural racism has many different definitions. Can you define what it means to you, particularly including historically and institutionally? Sure. Well, I would say that the term structural racism has really evolved over time. It first appeared in public health literature. So if you look at PubMed, for example, it first appeared in 2006. And at that time, it was actually referring to a paper about migrant workers in the U.S. Since then, we've really talked about structural racism in the context of Black Americans and thinking about the legacies of the history of slavery, Jim Crow, and other things that we've been working through as we're still in a civil rights movement, especially when it comes to Black Americans. So when Zinzi Bailey essentially reprised this idea in 2017, it was largely framed in thinking about structural racism as it applies to Black populations in the United States, and particularly to help us move beyond interpersonal racism or discriminatory acts. And the idea is that, that there's something larger out there that brings together racism at different forms and different levels to form a structure that is racist, regardless of 
whether or not someone feels or perceives it, that there is racism acting on people, particularly black people in the US, that needs to be acknowledged and addressed if we want to be able to move health disparities and health equity research forward. Hmm. Thank you. So Lori, you've noted that there's a lot of heterogeneity in the, in the way that we define structural racism, particularly in health studies. So can you explain maybe what you would say structural racism is and what it is not? Sure. And Dr. Roland Thorpe and I recently published a paper in the American Journal of Epi on this. And the goal of the paper, the main thesis of the paper, is that we want to go back to and really root our science in thinking about that definition that people like Dr. Zinzi Bailey and Dr. Mary Bassett put forward about what structural racism is. And the idea there is that it represents what we call the totality. So the culmination of systems, institutions, policies, and structures that work together or that interact to assert or to advance racist beliefs on a racialized group of people. And that's an important distinction because prior to this, we talked about racism in different ways. So there are, I would say, forms of racism when we talk about structural racism, and then there are levels of racism. So in thinking about the forms of racism, other ones that you might hear is something like institutional racism. And that's racism within a particular type of institution. I use this example because I think when people talk about institutional racism, um, sometimes what they actually mean is structural racism and vice versa. So I'll give you a specific example. Many times people will say segregation is a form of structural racism. I would argue that in many cases, Segregation, housing segregation, is actually a form of institutional racism because it's racism as applied to the institution of housing. I did some thesis research looking at segregation, and I wasn't thinking about segregation and the totality of ways and the totality of systems that come together to create segregation. I was physically talking about the physical separation of people in housing. And that's not necessarily structural racism because it's not about the totality of ways in which things are coming together. So I would say when you're talking about housing segregation, if you are talking just about the physical separation of people, then it's more likely aligned with a definition of institutional racism. But if you're talking about it as something that represents how these other systems come together and put people and cause people to live in different places, then it might be a measure of structural racism. So again, that totality part is an important distinction within structural racism. Mm -hmm. You might also hear words like systemic racism. That's a descriptive term that's about racialized systems of power. That's not necessarily a term that we would use to measure structural racism, or it's just a word that we would use to talk about what it is, but it's not necessarily something that we see operationally. And then there's cultural racism. And that one, I believe Dr. David Williams talks about cultural racism and defines it as the ideologies and societal norms about a racial group. So I would say those are the various forms of racism. But Dr. Kamara Jones has also talked about the levels of racism, um, which could be things like interpersonal racism, that institutional racism could also be another level of racism, and internalized racism as another level of racism. So one of the neat things that health equity scholars really need to do and think about is what are the forms of racism that we're talking about, as well as what are the levels in which they're operating? Yeah. yeah. And um, we've recently experienced that 
different disciplines use some of those words differently. Yeah. So, so we, we've been working with um, some scholars who call systemic racism. They, they use that interchangeably with one institution racism. So they would say there's systemic racism in education yeah. or in housing. In or, housing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but that was really clear and helpful. Thank you. Yeah, that's a great point. There are definitely some discipline-specific differences here. Yeah, I feel like we should publish that Dean's Dictionary of, yeah, very, very clear. Um, Yeah, so, so Lori, we found that most of our guests have some sort of experiences that have shaped and and really informed their commitment to working in this space, right, of structural racism. And just wondering for you, how did your experiences shape your interest in this area? And in particular, how did it lead you to focus on it with an eye towards public health? So that's a great question, in part because I would say there wasn't a straightforward path for me. My thinking about racism really stemmed from my personal experiences growing up. I grew up in central Pennsylvania, and central Pennsylvania, I think even now people recognize as an area that has really, I would say, struggled in terms of racism and discrimination. It's a place that still has a high number of racial supremacy groups and white supremacy groups. You know, it wasn't uncommon for us to have in our city Ku Klux Klan marches at some point during the year. It was just something that happened. And in the case of my own family, as black family that moved to central Pennsylvania, my family, for example, was trying to buy a house at one point. And for some reason, the real estate agent just kept on redirecting my parents And they told them the house was sold. And it turned out the house wasn't sold. It turned out they just didn't sell houses to black people in that area. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not that old. I'm not that old. (laughs) I think you're younger than uh, us, right? (laughs) So So these things were happening not that long ago. Yeah. But I would also hear people say things growing up like, you know, oh, racism doesn't, doesn't apply to you or you could see how far you've achieved. Clearly, racism doesn't still exist. And I was like, no, it, it clearly does. And sometimes it's operating on you even when you don't realize. I mean, my family didn't find out until later that those houses weren't sold, that they just didn't sell them to black families. Right. So clearly racist structures, racist beliefs were operating on me and my family, even when we didn't know it. Then there were other times where it was just overt that people were just calling us slurs or saying things, doing things that we absolutely knew about. But I think the more insidious were the things that you don't know about. And I say that to frame structural racism, because if you think about structural racism, there are often systems that people might not even be consciously aware of operating on them. Structures, policies. I mean, how would we know, for example, if we were getting a different tax rate than a white neighbor? How would we know if we were getting a different we'll say even pay than than a white colleague, right? Sometimes we don't even know or realize that these structures are operating on us and having racist impact. And so I think for me, that elevates the importance of structural racism above and beyond something like interpersonal discrimination and other things that we need to be looking at these other levels to see how racism is acting on people's lives. Wow. What a great Yeah. Thank you. Thank you you so much. So maybe to build on that, though, how did you then take those experiences and decide that public health would be the area worth focusing on? So I was always interested in health and to make a very, very long story short, uh, decided that for my doctoral dissertation that I was going to start looking at social capital and health. And at the time, there was a belief that social capital, the idea behind social capital is that there's a collective power 
social power that's above and beyond the contributions of individuals. So essentially being part of a group or collective is stronger than the sum of its parts. So this idea that social capital was related to health. And at the time there was, I would say in the social capital literature, people would say that social capital is something that's race agnostic. Social capital is something that, Mm -hmm. you know, everybody across racial groups has access to. And I had a different argument. Yeah. I said that I think that there are particular structures within certain communities that might represent social capital that we're just not recognizing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And did my research, my doctoral dissertation research, actually looking at Black parties as a unique form of social capital among Black communities and relating those to health outcomes. So as part of that, because I was doing Black parties, I also had to think about housing segregation. So it was this intersection of thinking about not just the Black parties, but also How do Black neighborhoods happen? And why do they need these particular social capital structures that are unique to them? So I would say I was already thinking about health among Black populations, but that required me to then think about what are the drivers of health among Black populations and ultimately just led me right into thinking about institutional racism and other racist structures. Wow. So for for our listeners who have not had the benefit that I have of actually... uh attending block parties. Um, <laughs> um, and, and, and happy to hear that it sounds like you, your work found that there's a there's a health benefit to maybe having that sort of social capital. But um, it actually didn't find a health benefit. Oh, no. Tragedy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> maybe other benefits. Maybe some other right. benefits. And it maybe was cross-sectional. So it's possible right. that just neighborhoods that are already not doing right. well. Longitudinal. Right, turn, right. Yes. Longitudinal. More block research parties. is needed. More research is needed for sure. Yes. There it is. Could you there provide a working definition of what, what is a block party for someone who uh who doesn't know what one is oh boy well i, See, I have an image yeah. in my head but i'm okay. not sure it's yeah. the same yeah, thing so, that yeah. you're talking about <laughs> so they call them different things in different places so in baltimore i believe they call them street festivals but where i was doing this work in philadelphia block parties are essentially when quite literally generally in a city you live as part of a a block right so what happens is there needs to be a petition that at least the majority of the people on the block sign to say, yes, we want to block off our street in order to have an outdoor barbecue on our street. Especially in the city when there tend to not be as many green spaces, people do them on the actual roads. But it's essentially a, a party in the middle of the day that a neighborhood decides that they're going to block off the street and do. That's yeah. how I pictured it. That's I've, I've been to those. Yeah, okay. uh-huh. yeah. 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 just want to make sure. Just yeah. want to make sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. great. Um, thank you for that. So structural racism has now been really named a public health issue and a fundamental cause of health inequities. What do you think schools of public health, nursing, and medicine can do to help dismantle it, either through education or research or service? So there is a lot of work to be done here. And there's a lot of work to be done, I would say, both internal to the academy and external to the academy. I am glad to know and to see that many schools of public health have been signing on to say structural racism and racism in general is a public health problem. I'm glad to see that many schools have embraced that and have actually put forth statements to say that that's something that they endorse. So I do think that's a first step, though not all schools have embraced that. And it just makes me wonder if they just don't believe it or just haven't said that they believe it. So one, increase that recognition and embrace it as part of the portfolio of what we need to do to address people's health. And that also includes teaching people about it, right? 
I do believe that in this is me as a social epidemiologist, but I believe that every public health and medicine student should have a foundation, at least one core course in social epidemiology to be able to understand people, populations, and things like racism and poverty and all of those things that affect the people that they will eventually serve. So teaching is an important part of it. And I would add nursing also- schools to that too. Just thank you. <laughs> yes, yes. And obviously nursing too. Mm-hmm. But I'd also say, And this is going to get a little bit spicy, but I'd also say that what I think many times is missing is an examination of our own structures and the ways in which they contribute to structural racism. Sure. And I'll give you a concrete example of this. When I thought about the large cohort studies that I know about on which a lot of public health research is based and it is the foundation of what we know about health, when I thought about who runs those studies? Who are the PIs of those studies? I could not name very many that were people of color. Many times those cohort studies are passed down over and over, and I could not think of very many instances in which they were passed down to people of color. And let's be honest, a lot of academic research operates based on relationships and who you know. And because the people who hold the research power, and in this case, the PIs of those studies, aren't opening it up to the network of faculty who are people of color, there are a lot of people of color who then don't have that, I would say, kind of institutional power to make decisions about what we know in public health and what questions get asked in public health. And I think that's a that's a real challenge and there's a real equity issue involved in who gets research funding and how that is perpetuated over generations of researchers. Wow. That's a, I think that's a you're really yeah. onto something. I also think that a logical step of that is that how the sampling works and mm-hmm. who's included, you know, just thinking about some cohort studies where maybe the white people are all over the country and the black people are oversampled in one place, one place for example. Yeah, yeah. And, exactly. and then it gets generalized to here's a national study showing this or this about race. But they only came from one right. city or something. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important. You know, and just really, and thank you for, I had not thought of this. And so you're opening up a lot of ideas and thoughts for me. Um, one of the things I wondered when you were speaking about this sort of handing down of, of studies, and I've seen it, you know, as someone trained in epidemiology is that often I think it's running up against the fact that we also have great disparities in who's promoted to the higher sort of ranks of academia, who would be, I think, broadly considered prepared to lead such a study. And so I think the two are just these two. Chicken and egg. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's, they're sort of, they're perpetuating each other, right? Um, Where it's like, oh, well, I'd love to hand it down to someone of color. Oh, but there's no one who's, qualified, right? In, and in, in the eyes of for that. In, yeah, for air quotes for the, uh, <laughs> since we're on a podcast, right. you, you can't see my air quotes. But so, so yeah, I think it, it's just feeding and, and it, that's a really, really big, big problem. And I don't mean to pick on cohort studies specifically. It was just a really concrete example in my mind of, of where this happens. I do think that also too, right, the NIH has put out several data briefs that have talked about NIH disparities funding, and that part of the problem is that things like health disparities research are just not prioritized by the NIH and there's not as much funding. So it is nice to see that funding organizations, the NIH, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, some of the other big ones, have now made specific calls around structural racism and doing that work. 
However, Dr. Cruz, it comes back to what you said. I think there was a recent analysis that someone had posted. It was on Twitter, so but I think it was done, <laughs> but it was done by a credible scientist who I know, <laughs> but it was posted on Twitter that talked about who's even getting that funding. And that largely a lot of that funding was not necessarily going to black scientists, scientists of color who have been entrenched in this work for a really long time. So I think there's some movement and I think there's some recognition, but we need to think more about these structures. And like you said, we talk about people being qualified or not qualified, but we don't realize that there's a whole structure around that that supports some people to the detriment of others. And those are the types of things that we need to be examining within our own structures. Absolutely. So um, so you've suggested through both your, your written work and, and your ideas that you shared with us today that better structural racism measures are needed. Um, so can you share with us a bit about your thoughts on indicators of structural racism that you feel might better capture its impact on health? Well, the great thing about the work that's already been done in terms of structural racism indicators is that there are some fantastic scientists who have been trying to tackle this question. So it sounds like Dr. Rachel Hardman, who I know is also going to appear on this podcast, uh, but there's other folks, Dr. Jeff Doherty, who is a trainee here at Hopkins. Um, he and I developed a measure of structural racism that's, that's at the county level that's been published and that we're trying to move forward. Um, there's Dr. Alicia Lukachko and Dr. Maeve Wallace, who had been doing this work years ago. And I would say that altogether, I think the most important thing is to think about the various domains in which structural racism is operating. Again, because structural racism is about the totality and the intersection of multiple domains. So I would say indicators that reflect things like political participation, employment, education, criminal justice, housing, socioeconomic position, and health we definitely need to make sure that our indicators stem from those domains. And across those things, I think that there actually could be some maybe new and interesting indicators that we haven't yet considered. So some of my body of research has looked at things like consumer credit. I actually have a whole body of research that has looked at the relationship between consumer credit and health. There's more things coming out about consumer credit and health. But I haven't yet been able to quite apply that specifically to thinking about consumer credit and structures of racism or structural racism and how that plays out in consumer credit. But I think there's something there. I was also talking with someone recently. Uh, it was a doctoral student who is interested in doing some work around housing taxes. So, right, there's housing taxes, gentrification, those sorts of things that have not been yet included as indicators in the existing measures that we have. Hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the main methodological challenges though here is I would say something that we would call endogeneity. And that's the idea that many of the things that we are actually measuring as indicators are actually outputs of the structural racism itself. Right. And that's where this gets really tricky. What I would say to that is maybe some of the things that we also need to be thinking about are policies. And maybe our structural racism measures should also include policies around equity and potentially the absence of policies around equity that would reinforce or help dismantle structural racism. And I don't know that any of the measures have actually included anything about policies or particular structures. One other thing I'll say, we might also need to think about how these measures apply in different settings. So there's, I think, larger structural racism. But as I mentioned before, if we're going to think about academia, maybe there are specific indicators within academia that we need to be thinking about as well. Right. Also, 
in a place like Idaho, for example, that's uh, has many fewer African Americans in it. You know, the policies may look different, but there still mm. may be some indicators where it's really strong. Or, and then there's the whole life course. But um, so. I think that's a really interesting point you bring up, because if you look at the measures that we've had so far, many of them don't show up as high on structural racism in the areas where you would expect. So I think people would expect them to be highest in, for example, the Deep South. And we actually don't see them the highest in the Deep South. A lot of times we see them higher in the Northeast or even on the West. And so I think that also speaks to, is there something that we're missing? Is there something that we're not capturing in those areas? Because we know that health outcomes, especially for black families, are pitiful in some of those areas of the Deep South. So why, what are we missing? What are we not capturing that might be predicting those health outcomes? Right. And the reverse, I think if, if yeah. for example, if we're looking at census tracts that are overwhelmingly one race or another and looking at it as segregation, in a country with so many different kinds of counties and so many mm-hmm. different patterns of where people are, it can be hard to, to have a measure that works all across the states. The same. Hmm. So another really simple question that you're going <laughs> to, that you've nailed these questions so well. I know we're learning so much. How do you see the translation of your research into policies and practices that can impact the real world? I mean, you talked about academia. I can see very clearly how um, paying attention to what you talked about could change academia. How about, you know, in some of the other realms, if structural racism was acted on in policies and practices, where do you think we should start? Well, one of the things that I'm really excited about is that Dr. Jeff Doherty, who I mentioned before, and I have a new R01 that's looking at county level structural racism and hypertension outcomes. And one of our aims in that study is to be able to quantify the economic impact of structural racism on hypertension outcomes. And because we're using a county level structural racism measure, we want to use this as a tool to go back to county leaders and say, If you can address X, Y, Z things, you'll actually see lives saved in terms of hypertension, and you'll also see this much in terms of healthcare savings. And I think making that connection is, one, an important step for policymakers, right, to see that their constituents will be alive to continue to vote for them, and two, (laughs) that that the counties will be able to save money in some ways. So I do think that we still need to continue to make this argument, especially to our policymakers. Hmm. Great. And you make such a good point about measuring at the county level, because some people might argue that the census tract level is more precise, but nobody, nobody runs a census tract. You know, no one's, no, there's no mayor or governor or senator of a census tract. And so it just turns out to be knowledge for knowledge's sake. Whereas it's uh, what you're talking about, you can go back to the people who run that county and Mm -hmm. say, here, here's what you should do. Yeah. I also think we have a very interesting opportunity now to potentially do some natural experiments because there have been, I would argue, some interventions that have been happening around structural racism in different parts of the country. So in some places, for example, those are things, and I think in California has really led the way around things like a reparation fund, essentially, that we can then look and see whether or not structural racism has changed over time before and after these initiatives. There's also been a movement around guaranteed income, which there's actually a pilot right here in Baltimore. And for those who are listening who might not know what that is, the idea behind guaranteed income is that people are given essentially a monthly income supplement to improve their lives. It's generally for low-income families, and sometimes there are other criteria that are used to decide who gets these. And these are all randomized controlled trials where 
half of the group will be getting these income supplements and half won't. And then we'll look over a period of one to two years to see how their in outcomes change. In many cases, those outcomes are economic outcomes. But in the case of our work here in Baltimore, which I'm part of the Mayor's Guaranteed Income Steering Committee, um, is we're also particularly looking at health and trying to make not just the economic argument, but the health argument. But this is what we see as part of dismantling structural racism, is going back and looking at who has experienced these disparate economic outcomes as a result of racism, right? That's the totality part. It's not just economic, it's also racial. And then doing something to rectify that and then seeing what happens, seeing how people improve. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. That's terrific. So if we were to take a take a trip uh, to, your, to your home and see your vision board, <laughs> I'm just going to guess that you have a vision board. Um, what would you <laughs> say, what would you say is your vision for health equity in the next decade? There are so many things on that vision board. <laughs> Good. <laughs> the first thing that I think of, and this is what I've said before, is I think everyone who comes through any sort of health training field needs to have some foundation in health equity. I think that should be core curriculum at every school that a person in public health, medicine, nursing, pharmacy, I mean, anything where you are interacting with people, you should have a foundation and an understanding of populations, the social factors that influence those populations. So there are other things that we consider core in principle. I don't understand why if all of these schools of public health are now making a commitment around racism, why that then wouldn't be also considered part of core curriculum and what people need to understand. So I would say that's one part of it. I think the other thing is to actually see real action. I would say the federal government spends a lot of money on different types of studies. And I won't even demonize any particular types of studies. <laughs> Please don't. But I think that there needs to be some greater emphasis on some of these community-based participatory research studies that bring together people who are on the ground, who are already doing something to tackle some of these problems. Even though they're not researchers, we need to be supporting these academic and community partnerships to be able to move that sort of work forward. The things that are actually making a difference on the ground, not the things that necessarily can sell a patent or the other things that often I think get priority when it comes to funding, but the things that are actually improving people's health. And maybe what we need to do is actually go that way, is to look at what have been what has been successful in the communities mm -hmm. and then retrofitting that to what we decide is going to be funded. Yeah. Thank you. It's a beautiful vision. Thank you. And so concrete. <laughs> yeah. Very helpful. Um, so we like to end each episode with asking about a favorite piece of advice that you've been given. Do, do you have a particular piece of advice that you've received that really sticks in your head in terms of it's helped um, guide you in difficult times or in your ambitions or in uh, anything about your career? The one standout piece of advice that a friend gave me years ago, almost 20 years ago, was most of the time things don't work out the way that you expect them to. And most of the time, that's a good thing. I have found that to be true over and over again in my personal life, in my professional life, and even as part of one of the reasons that I'm here. I started out in undergrad as in pre-med and got about three years into it and decided, I don't think this is for me. And I didn't know what I was going to do. And that was a really scary point to be in. 
But in the end, I mean, look where it brought me. It brought me to something that I love doing that intersects with my values and that I feel like can make a meaningful impact. And if I would have known about how happy I was going to feel about the contributions that I'm making now back then, I wouldn't have fretted for a day. And I think if back then I had been equipped with that long-term vision of most of the time, (laughs) it's not going to work out the way you expect it to. And that's still okay. I think I would have done a lot better during that period of transition in my life. Thank you, Dr. Dean, for joining us today. That was a fantastic conversation. So lucky to be with you. Just thank you. For our listeners, check out our website, nursing.jhu.edu backslash aging fast and slow for the articles and resources referenced in the episode. Have comments, questions, or guest suggestions? Reach out to us at agingfastandslow at jhu.edu. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend, rate it, or write us a review. Special thanks to Jennifer McCord for editing and sound design, Rafe Reggie and Florentina Costaca for technical expertise, Brian Fitzek for production, and Tim Carl and Danielle Kress for web design. See you next time on Aging Fast and Slow.